When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Chuckles-Clark. There's Chuck... Joshles. Chuckles. (laughs) Brian. Yeah, that would have been way better. And there's Jerry. Just Jerry. Roland hanging out too and that makes this stuff you should know about vaudeville uh my favorite day of the year is today uh vaudeville day (laughs) no i mean you can never tell when it's going to happen and it will get hot again but it's that first whiff of fall oh i love that so much it's so nice isn't it it's uh one o'clock in atlanta and it's 73 degrees 40 (laughs) percent humidity which is for atlanta that means zero humidity yeah, exactly. And a little cool breeze it's, blowing. Yeah, it's beautiful out. Those leaves are going to start turning any second. No, we'll get hot as Hades again before October. It just does. Yeah, it does that. Like, it, it makes sure it's nice and balmy and, and muggy on Thanksgiving for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the winter, it'll start to get nice. Like, you're like, okay, spring is here. And then, bam, they dump you with the only snowfall of the year in, like, right. mid-February. <laughs> Uh, Atlanta is an odd place. At least for this one day, we get a little, little whiff of fall, a little whiff of football in the air. Yeah, the stank of football is in the air. That's right. Chuck. So we're not talking about football, although I'm sure somebody did a jokey football routine at some point in the history of vaudeville, which is what we're talking about. Oh, sure. We're talking about vaudeville, like I just said. Yeah, and this was. Uh, uh, an idea by the very guy who wrote it for us, uh, our old pal Dave Ruse. He said uh, he got very aggressive and said, well, "Hey, uh, Chuck, since it's your turn to pick one, you know, I did this thing on vaudeville or saw something on vaudeville. It sounded interesting." And I said, "All right, Smarty Pants, go do it." He said, "Oh, you want me to do it? Huh? Huh?" Uh, very. I'm surprised we hadn't done this before, though, because it's really. Cool, and kind of, I think it's appropriate that it's uh, sort of nearby our sitcoms twofer. Right. Because this was like, this was it. This was TV, baby, before there was TV. Yeah, and there's, before we get started, I'm hoping you can help me figure this out, but we have definitely talked about the vaudeville circuit at length in another episode, and it's been driving me bananas because I cannot think of what the episode was. Was it Freak Shows? No. No? I think it was more recent than that, within the last year or two. Hmm. 
It was, I, I don't mm. think it was freak shows, man. I really don't. But uh, I looked, I was like, wait a minute, have we done vaudeville before? And we definitely have not. Because we talked so, about the Chitlin circuit on another episode. Exactly. Yeah, that was on Same that one. episode. We talked about like the Poconos, the Borscht Belt and all that. Yeah. I don't remember what we would have been talking. I don't think know. it had anything to do with desert survival. Luckily, we have a thousand people that listen to our show every week. <laughs> At the very the least, eight hundred. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very familiar to me. I don't, I don't know, unless we did vaudeville and just spaced both Forgot. of us and didn't title it appropriately. Yeah, uh, we titled it a podcast to remember. Right, but it was about vaudeville. <laughs> So uh, we are talking vaudeville, and I think it's one of those things where even if you're Gen Z, even if you're a boomer, it doesn't matter. Everybody's at least somewhat familiar, cognizant that vaudeville existed at some time in the past and uh, had to do with um, jokes. There were yucks involved. Um, it, it happened on stage. Uh, it was deeply racist in a lot of places. Um, and uh, for a lot of people, that's like the sum total of what they understand about vaudeville. But it is not... Uh, an overstatement to say that vaudeville basically gave birth to every form of entertainment that we know and love today. It was a strange midwife between mm. the theater and uh, mass um, commercial media. Yeah. Did you write that down? That was good. I, did, I didn't. <laughs> I did, I'm like furiously rubbing it off of my forearm. Uh, you know, it's for sure deeply racist in some ways at times, which we'll talk about, but also deeply inclusive in, in that uh, all kinds of people perform vaudeville. Everybody loved vaudeville. I mean, yes. it, it, it spanned every sort of demographic you could imagine from old to young and ethnic, uh, ethnicity to uh, uh, wealthy people to poor people, because uh, yeah. it didn't cost a whole lot. You know, people would would literally save their pennies to get into these cheap dime. Uh, I was about to say dime store, but whatever, dime a ticket entry shows. Right, no. right, and it was family friendly too, as we'll see, which was kind of revolutionary, um, and that actually established vaudeville as like a like a genuine American phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, that was the deal. And, you know, we were sort of the vaudeville of podcasts 15 years ago in some ways because everyone else came out of the gate saying, you know what, FCC doesn't uh, care what we say. <laughs> filth, floor, and filth, foul. And yeah. uh, looking back now, we were lucky enough to have a, I guess, fortunate enough to have a company at the time that was like, uh, you're not allowed to, to cuss and stuff. Uh, Don't even try so it. So we didn't, and uh, we we had to park our notoriously foul tongues at the door, and I think that's <laughs> what helped our show out in a lot of ways. Is that people listen to it in classrooms and in the car with their families and stuff like that. Right, absolutely, and like to to think today, like of just randomly cursing casually and stuff. You should know it's it seems weird. Yeah, and, we could now alien. if we wanted to. I mean, I don't want to, Chuck. Don't make me. Oh, cuss, cuss. Nay, instead, let's talk about vaudeville, and we're going to keep it clean and family-friendly, just like vaudeville. And we're going to start, Chuck, with actually the word vaudeville, which it sounds French, vaguely French, and um, correctly so, because it actually originates in the French language. That's right, uh, apparently. And this is, I think Dave was right on point. He says it has a pretty interesting etymology. As far as etymologies go, this one seems to be kind of ironclad and interesting. 
Yeah, uh, it's rare. Because yeah, it's very rare. So uh, in the 15th century in France, there was a poet. His name was, uh, I guess you would say, Olivier Basseline. But the ironic thing is, he didn't know it. <laughs> Took me a half a beat to get that one. It did. I was like, is there a latency here? <laughs> uh, and he was a, a poet who wrote uh, satire. He was, I guess, sort of like the uh, Ray Stevens of his time. <laughs> and that's something that Gen Z will not get, <laughs> for sure. And God bless you for that, Gen Z. And so what was the deal, though? Where was he from? He was from the Val de Vire, which is the Vire Valley in French. And so um, these kind of silly folksy country songs, often satirical, that, you know, found their origination in the 1400s in France, came to be known as Chanson de Vaudevere. So songs from the Vere Valley. Like Disco Duck. And I, basically, <laughs> yeah. That would have that would have absolutely been a Chanson de Vaudevere. So um, over time, I guess in France, everybody's got sick of, you know, putting the, the Vere Valley on the map, and they just changed Vere to Ville, which means town. So technically, vaudeville means uh, valley town, which makes zero sense if you stop and think about it. But it doesn't matter because it gets the point across because it's evolved to take on a different meaning over time. Yeah. And these in France, they had uh, Theatre du Vaudeville, which were these parody plays. Mm -hmm. And then when America, you know, vaudeville is a uniquely American thing. Uh, Well, not uniquely American because there were – uh, precedents in other countries, but vaudeville itself became very American, and you'll see why. Mm-hmm. But they they basically just said, "Hey, that sounds kind of fancy in French," and it was at a time in America when they like to name things fancy French things. Well, yes. It also, so one of the things about vaudeville that it's important to realize is that it was created for this burgeoning middle class, where there were like a lot more. There was pe- people had a little more spending money than they did before. Their work conditions stunk, as we'll see, but th- there was a middle class developing, and this was designed specifically to target those people. And they wanted to d- differentiate themselves from some of the predecessors, which were much bawdier, much racier, much more drunken. Um, and vaudeville was like, no, we're different, even though it's a lot the same stuff. Yeah, England, uh, Italy, they all had these sort of body plays where people would get hammered in the audience or and or on stage. <laughs> Uh, in America, even uh, pre-Civil War, the shows were, um, you know, they were very risque. They were kind of burlesque in nature. Uh, or you might have like, you know, sort of uh, scantily clad at the time, of course, was nothing like you would see today. But sure. like a scantily clad uh, ladies dancing. Uh, and then like two guys bare knuckle boxing right afterward. And everyone's getting drunk. And I bet those were a lot of fun. But uh you know. Yeah, it sounds a lot like a Chelsea Handler <laughs> show today. But uh, a few gentlemen came along in particular in the United States that said, hey, why don't we, like you said, open this up to the middle class, make it for everyone, make it where families could come, because they they wanted to make money. I don't think they're on a crusade to, to clean up America's act, is they wanted no. to get rich. No, but they were the kind of strict, um, like – I guess taskmasters that that like they had some really strange requirements as we'll see. We'll we'll get to that in a second. But um, in addition to the variety shows, circuses were a thing. I think they we've never done an actual circus episode, have we? 
we've done a lot of the circus arts, but I don't know that we've done a full like circus app, have we? (laughs) No, I think very us. It's hilarious. So circuses were kind of coming of age at this time. Um, There were also sideshows, something called dime museums, which is basically like a storefront. Um, where people would pay and just come look at some exhibits. And I saw, I found this amazing contemporary, yes, uh, reporting from the Saturday Evening Post from June 5th, 1909. And it was basically um, an article written by one of the big vaudeville producers at the time, Percy G. Williams. And it was called Vaudeville and the Vaudevillians. And he's talking about some of the origins of vaudeville. And he says that one of the... um, the three biggest people to establish vaudeville was Benjamin Franklin Keith. And his first role as a manager was of a store show that featured a fat baby as the main attraction. (laughs) (laughs) Who did that baby grow up to be? Is there a great ending there? (laughs) Uh, And that baby grew up to be W.C. Fields. Oh, see, that would be, you should just say that. Everybody would believe you. Sure, I know. that's. It wasn't as funny because it was so believable. Uh, Maybe we'll edit that out. No, no, no. I love it. So B.F. Keith was one of the guys. Uh, a guy named E.F. Albee was another guy. They teamed up um, as cohorts in Boston and opened up the Bijou Theater and basically developed a – and as you'll see, kind of with vaudeville, it wasn't just like, hey, let's you know, we'll just do a show every now and then. They developed these circuits and these systems and these tours – and these basically management companies where they would mm-hmm. just send people out all over the country. And it, it really kind of quickly became like a big, big business. Chuck, ask me again who the fat baby grew up to be. Hey, is there a great ending? Like who that fat baby grew up to be? Yeah, that fat. <laughs> <laughs> Take three. Doot. Beep, beep. Hey, yeah, that- who that fat Sorry. baby? <laughs> Take four. <laughs> hey, does that have a great ending? Who that fat baby grew up to be? Tony Danza. <laughs> Even better. Okay. Even thanks. better. That's Tony Danza's a better punchline in almost every joke. Agreed, man. And apparently, uh, Who's the Boss is having some sort of reboot what? in the works. Really? Yeah, I saw it on Entertainment Tonight. So, um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's true. So, uh, Tony Pastor was the guy who supposedly coined the term vaudeville or adopted the term vaudeville to describe this thing that was basically like those variety shows, except no, not body. Um, there was no liquor on the premises. Right. Uh, which was a big one at the time. Sure. Um, the the skits and the performers were all family friendly. The language was family friendly. It was like the kind of thing that like the whole family from the little kids to the grandma and the parents could all go sit down and enjoy this this show together, right? Um, and like I said, they had some really like strict requirements. I saw B.F. Uh, Keith, Benjamin Franklin Keith, particularly did not like certain kinds of language. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, <laughs> he didn't like it if you said slob. Okay. Son of a gun. Mm-hmm. Holy G, which I think is maybe golly G. Yeah, that, I don't get that one. That one's weird. And the coup de gras, Chuck, um, pants. Yeah. <laughs> Do not say pants around BF Keith. You better say trousers or else you're going to get what was um, – Referred to as a blue envelope, right? Yeah, and here's where it gets um, 
the whole notion of blue comedy, which is comedy that is uh, got like foul language or whatever. If like if you're doing mm-hmm. blue work or blue comedy, mm-hmm. there are a lot of different because uh, you know Dave said in here, uh, and Dave did make this up, but he saw that that may have been one of the origins of some people think it's the origin of the term working blue or doing blue comedy. And I looked into it, and there were there are, there are a lot of different explanations. Um, sure. I mean, I saw like eight or 10 and they all sounded pretty realistic. Um, right. Everything from this one uh, comedian named Max Miller, who kept all his adult jokes in a blue notebook. That's kind of roundly okay. been dismissed to yeah. in England. Uh, after the theater act of 1843, they had to submit plays to the examiner of plays like capital E capital P to uh-huh. audit the scripts and then send them back and say, you can't get a, a permit with this script. And apparently they would do that in blue pencil. That sounded really re- realistic, but there were a bunch of different stories, but at any rate, perhaps if you got a blue envelope from Benjamin Franklin Keith, that, that could have been the origin as well. Who knows? Yeah. Because it meant like he was sending you a note to say like, you better tone your act down or you're going to get the boot basically. That's right. And in addition to blue, um, a lot of the terms we use today came out of vaudeville. I saw, um, like, killing them. Uh, <laughs> Not that word I just made up. Oh, like, killing I just instead. killed on stage? Yes, yeah. exactly. Headliner, surefire. Oh, wow. Uh, lemon for, like, a bad thing, like a failure. Uh-huh. Um, a, a bunch of different stuff that I had no idea. This just completely part of the common vernacular just came out of the vaudeville world. I love that. Me too. It's the origins of uh, origins of popular entertainment. <laughs> We're having a hard time today. Huh? I don't know what's going on. I got marbles in my mouth. I'm all excited about fall. Maybe we should take a break. Okay. Oh yeah. Let's do that. All right. I'm gonna get these marbles out, and we'll be right back. All right. Game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next-generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one-time fee, or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Okay, so this is something we've talked a lot about in various episodes over the years, but um, pre-Civil War and post-Civil War America were very different in how people lived. Uh, Pre-Civil War, about 90% of Americans lived in the country. Um, by the you know mid-1880s or so, um, the, industrial, the second Industrial Revolution comes around. All of a sudden, it is almost flip-flopped. It's about half and half of people living in cities and people mm-hmm. still hanging out in the country. And in those cities, there are obviously a lot of immigrants coming in, like really, really quickly, especially in places like New York, obviously. And mm-hmm. they were, you know, didn't make a lot of money, but they worked really, really long hours and had very little free time. And all of a sudden, there was this thing that you could do with your very little free time that costs like a nickel or a dime. And you could go in there for a few hours and kind of forget the drudgery of living in a tenement building and working in a factory. Yeah. And so, like, not only did it bring, like, the people from the neighborhood around, because, like, one vaudeville theater owner might own 10 theaters in one city like New York so that they were they catered to the neighborhood. So you don't have to go very far. Um, Dave also points out that through some of, like, the the most cringy and outright racist ethnic jokes and slurs that were part of the acts of some of these, not all the acts, but enough of them that it was definitely a thing, that it wasn't meant to be mean-spirited, at least not in the vaudeville world. It had definitely been mean-spirited before, um, but say like if you were poking fun at Chinese immigrants and how they talked or um, Irish immigrants and how they talked, um, 
it was a form of assimilation in a weird way because those very people were out there in the audience laughing along with everybody else. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes, as we'll see, um, people of that ethnicity may have been playing those, you know, over-the-top stereotype versions of their ethnicity. And and in a weird way, it does. it is kind of how people came together and initially melted together when America was just beginning to be a melting pot. Yeah, it was the initial melt. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how these things went down uh, because there's a very kind of great uh, motto for vaudeville, which was, if you don't like this, wait a few minutes. And that's how it went down. They were variety shows in every uh, every essence of that word. Um, we've done a few variety shows over the years, and I definitely enjoy our Stuff You Should Know Live, which, by the way, look for some announcements soon for early next year. Yeah. West Coast. Hint, hint. Yeah. Uh, I definitely prefer those, but early on we did a few variety shows where we would have like some music mm-hmm. and a comedian and someone do a reading and, uh, it, you know, the, the, someone... Uh, Interpretive dance. <laughs> that's the one thing we lacked. Uh, but those were always a lot of fun because I think we both enjoyed that spirit of the variety show. Uh, when you're a kid of the 70s and 80s, those were still very much a part of television growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they're, they're the, you can draw a direct line from what you saw on, you know, the, the Mandrell sister show or Hee Haw, right, right back to vaudeville. Uh, and the whole idea was, if you don't like it, wait a few minutes. They would have, you know, maybe 10, 15 minute, 20 minute at the longest, the 30 minute act. And then somebody completely different would come out next. Yeah, and um, Percy Williams kind of put it pretty plainly in that Saturday Evening Post article that, like, a vaudeville theater manager is entirely different from what he called the legitimate theater manager. Yeah. Um, in that every week you were coming up with a new, like, show of uh, 10, 12 acts that you had to arrange just the right way to yeah. keep the audience entertained. You, you'd lull them into, like, complacency with a beautiful, like, ballet act. And then after that, like, two acrobats who may or may not have been brothers came bounding right. out onto the stage. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, there was a comedian who would just slay everybody. Um, like, it was very much laid out in the way that um, that it was supposed to be. And it was all, all vaudeville shows were laid out in the exact same way. But there, the different kinds of acts, Dave dug up a handbook from 1914 called How to Enter Vaudeville. Did you mark your and, favorites? Yes. Okay. You proceed, though. <laughs> I marked down one, eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, all right. Uh, well, my first favorite was the first one on the list, a shadowist. Because mm-hmm. those are just fun. Those are people who, I guess, do like the hand shadows and things, right? That would be my take on it, too. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. What do you got? Uh, um, my first one was a hobo act, and the reason why <laughs> that was on my list too. <laughs> the reason why I chose hobo act is because I saw that um, at Benjamin Franklin Keith's shows at his theaters, even if you were doing a hobo act, you still had to wear a clean shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, you're like, no, but this is my outfit. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the next on my list was uh, the Human Calculator Act. Okay. Always fun. Yeah, I'd like that too. Yeah. Um, I've got one, uh, electrical acts, which, I mean, we're talking like the beginning of the 20th century. So electricity was really strange and exotic. And there were people who would have different acts. So um, I found this site called uh, Vaudeville America. 
And every single vaudeville act that ever performed would have a little note card with like a little summation about their show, how it was received by the audience, how long it ran. Um, and Vaudeville America has all of these things. And I found them for electrical acts. It was all over the place. Like it could be electricity used to trigger special effects uh-huh. or um, it could be like a scientist demonstrating yeah. different things with electricity. Uh-huh. <laughs> or sometimes people took massive electrical shocks right. to the body <laughs> to perform. Like that was what they did as part of their electrical show. So that was definitely one of my favorites too. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely some sort of Jim Rose circus adjacent things. Oh, yeah. Like sword swallowing and stuff like that. Um, but my favorite, my last two are statuary posing <laughs> okay. and uh, paper tearing. Yeah, I, hot paper, paper tearing. tearing I was like, <laughs> I don't know about that one. I mean, it must be. Well, I don't know. I was gonna say it must be like ripping phone books in half, but it, it might not have been. Maybe it was tearing paper like a reverse origami or something. Yeah, I, that's what I would take it as for sure. Uh, it's basically a vaudeville show was a compilation of stuff that you would see today uh, at halftime at NBA games. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. there'd be a dude like balancing a chair uh-huh. on his chin, and on top of that are eight other chairs, right. and at the very top of that <laughs> is his wife. Like, like that's the kind of stuff that you would see at vaudeville, and then you'd also see serious stuff too. Like there were tabloid plays where they would distill a like a three four act play yeah. down into fifteen minutes, and it wasn't necessarily a comedy; it could be a tragedy. And these people just figured out how to do the Reader's Digest version. So it was all over the place, and they they were laid out in just the right way by the vaudeville theater managers. Yeah, there was a great quote from this. Did you watch any of that PBS documentary? Yeah, it was very good. It was good. Uh, the quote from there was, there was everything from a guy playing a piano to a guy eating a piano. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you see that agent who described the guy who would eat a baby shark? Uh-huh. And then throw it up back into, like, a jar, and the shark would just swim around afterward? Yeah. it's. I mean, that was vaudeville. (laughs) Um, And, you know, like you said, they had to lay it out in such a way. It it wasn't just willy-nilly. You know, it was very intentional. And apparently the first act, to be the first act of the last act wasn't a great sign. Uh, for you that well it probably what it probably meant is that you were either brand new or just not very good and you didn't really have mm-hmm. a great act but they needed sure. somebody because the opening act would be kind of the seating act like people are still sort of getting in their seats and doing their thing but they wanted to have something up there I was about to say on the screen on the stage mm-hmm. um, and then the last one which is hysterical and goes counter to every showbiz rule now which was like leave them with something great Mm-hmm. They wanted to purposely leave them with something not so great so they could just turn the house over and get people the heck out of there. And they mm-hmm. wouldn't be like, more, more. Encore. <laughs> so they would, it was like a, in Mexicali Grill in Athens when we would, uh, we would crank like, you know, Public Enemy or, you know, some really heavy metal or something at the end of the night just to get people out of there. For sure. They called the uh, last act on the bill the haircut act because that performer would just see the back of everybody's heads on their way out. To be clear, we loved Public Enemy. The people that dined at Mexicali hated it. Sure. Okay. I understand. Just want people to be like, why is Chuck playing Public Enemy to get people out of there? Like, if, <laughs> if you knew the clientele at Mexicali Grill in Athens in the mid-90s, you'd know. Yeah, some emailer just was like, oh, yeah. save draft, <laughs> no. Um. So what that meant was that second to the last act was is what mm-hmm. you would look at as sort of the ma- the best act of the night, 
And sometimes, yeah, that could be like a really big name. I mean, it could be Harry Houdini on any given night. It could be, um, you know, Al Jolson, uh, for better or for worse, on any given night. Mm -hmm. Like a huge, massive star. Like these, the people who were, um, who were uh, the second to last act on a bill at a big uh, vaudeville theater in a big city were probably the most famous people in the United States and Europe yeah. in a lot of cases. Like they were as famous as you can possibly get, legendary in their fields, beloved by all. Like, and you could go spend 10 or 25 cents, depending on how good the show was, and see those people like in your neighborhood, you know, depending on what city it was. Because like you said, the um, the the whole thing that kind of spread vaudeville far and wide was the fact that they created these circuits. And so you didn't even necessarily have to live in a big city to see these people live. Um, because if you had a, a theater in your town that was part of a circuit that originated in New York, they might end up there performing as the second to last act on the bill. And I'm, we'll, I mean, we'll talk more about circuits in a minute, but I just got very excited about that. Yeah. Let's go back to racism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Smart. <laughs> so, you know, we made the point that, um, or I don't know if we made this original point, um, when they, someone was doing what you would call like an ethnic dialogue act or a dialect act, mm-hmm. um, they would go up there and do this racial ethnic stereotype and it, it could be anything. It was like nobody was safe. It could be a big Italian guy doing this a big spicy meatball thing. That's the only one I'm allowed to do, so that's all I'm going to do. No, it could be like German, Irish, uh, in any sort of European immigrant. They could be mm-hmm. uh, making fun of Jewish people, Chinese people, Native Americans who also had, as we'll see, their own circuit. And they would also make fun of themselves. So it was interesting in that it was sort of a – uh, it was sort of the great leveling ground in that no one was really spared, right? Right. And uh, in a lot of ways, it was because a lot of the members of those same ethnic groups, like I was saying, performed those dialect acts right. where they were really hamming it up and really going over the top with these stereotypes of their own ethnicity. Um, and even blackface, depending on the context was, um, depending on who was doing it, was anti-racist. Because one of the overlooked things about blackface is, uh, as far as vaudeville is concerned, there were a number of African-American vaudeville performers who did blackface and actually preferred to do blackface because it changed everything. It said, we're in an alternate universe here, and the rules are kind of out the window. Right. And then they could all of a sudden do a a take on a, a satire, let's say, about the white guy who's running the vaudeville show and get right. away and or, get away with it. Yeah, or make fun of the idea of blackface done by white people, like make fun of blackface acts as a blackface act performed by an African American. So yeah, it it gave them a lot more leeway to just kind of set things straight a little more. But um the the history of blackface is terribly horribly racist. Um, but, but everything leading up to vaudeville and some vaudeville acts were still terribly racist. But um, the stuff leading up to it was indisputably vilely racist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest stars in the early 20th century uh, was a, a black man named Burt Williams. Very handsome, smooth, cool-looking dude. If you look at pictures mm-hmm. of this guy, 
he's like he's like the the Billy D Williams of his time. Billy D Williams? Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know why that sounded wrong all of a sudden. You ever do that? Yeah. Like you'll say a called, name and you're like, "What?" It's called semantic satiation. Oh, really? Where you you do or say or, or um, speak something so much that it, it it just loses its meaning and like doesn't look right spelled and all that stuff. You know, I thought I got it wrong. I actually just figured out because in my head, I s- had D as D period, like an initial. No. And not D-E-E. Like D. Wallace. Billy D. Wallace <laughs> Williams. Anyway, uh, he kind of looked like uh, Billy D. a little bit. Very smooth looking guy. And he was the first black performer to star to star in the Zigfield Follies, uh, which was you know, one of the biggest vaudeville reviews in New York City at the time. And he... And also all white, too. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why it was important that he was the first black performer. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes. Uh, but he was... Um, he did blackface, of course, and he was on record as saying, like, it. he said, it, quote, it was not until I was able to see myself as another person, uh, and I think he's meaning blackface, that my sense of humor developed. So for him, I think he said it allowed it uh, to come out of his shell sort of comedically fully. Yeah, there was, um, they covered him really well in that PBS documentary, and there was a quote from W.C. Fields. No word what Tony Danza had to say. But W.C. Fields said that um, Burt Williams was the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever met. Oh, interesting. And what he was referring to is that Burt Williams is called the Jackie Robinson of, of vaudeville because he broke that color barrier. He was the first one. But he also, like, seemed to feel, like, the weight of history on his shoulders. And he spent—he just worked tirelessly to prove that he was at least as good— if not better than any white sure. vaudeville performer. And supposedly, according to this PBS documentary, essentially worked himself to death at age 46. Oh, wow. Yeah, but he was a great talent. And um, even even in his time, he was considered just a legendary star and comedian, like beloved by all. Yeah, I'm going to take issue with PBS, though, because I know someone else will write in saying the same thing. I, I don't think you— can say that someone is the Jackie Robinson of something before Jackie Robinson. <laughs> it's, it's true. I know it's that's what people like to say, but like Jackie Robinson was the Burt Williams of baseball, if anything. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, I think that's a great, great uh, correction, Chuck. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people just use that term now, you know, like somebody could say so-and-so is the Jackie Robinson of cave people. <laughs> like Tuk Tuk okay. was the Jackie Robinson of cave people. All right. I mean, it still gets the point across. Are I know, you turning I know, into I a prescriptivist? No, 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 no. I'm, okay. I'm moving on. Uh, to Al Jolson, who we mentioned earlier. He was mm-hmm. one of the biggest stars in the world as well. He very famously uh, donned blackface. Uh, and he is someone who went on to have a, a huge career once movies came around. And we'll, you know, we'll get to the effect movies had on all this. Uh, but he starred, he was Jewish, and he starred in The Jazz Singer, which was the the big sort of first huge feature-length talkie in 1927. Yeah. And it's interesting that this vaudeville star became the first um, talkie star for movies because um, that was that was a transition that, that quickly took over, actually, as we'll see. Um, and I say we take a break, Chuck, and come back to more vaudeville stuff. How about that? Let's do it. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. 
Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. So now, finally, we're on to that part that I was so excited about, circuits. Yeah, the circuit was the business model, basically. 
that allowed everybody to make a lot of money. Certainly the the owners of these theaters and the people who um, had lots and lots of these performers signed up to exclusive contracts. Yeah, and just as an aside about that big money, um, I put together Percy Williams' 1909 Saturday Evening Post information okay. with our friends at Westegg, the inflation calculator. Yeah, I did that too. Some of the some of the the amounts that he was throwing out, like three hundred dollars a week, was not out of the question um, for a good like performer on vaudeville, and that meant you automatically made half a million dollars a year. But it just kept going up from there. Like um, I think the highest paid that he mentioned um, was a performer who pulled in three thousand dollars a week. A week. Yes, which is forty-seven grand a week today, which That's, is yeah. like over five million dollars in today's money for a year. That's like mid-level podcaster money, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, the average American was making about twenty-five bucks a week at the time. So, if you're making three hundred and fifty dollars a week, and you know it's the same today, that the big entertainers sort of have always made lots and lots and lots of money because they could charge a lot or not a lot of money but they could charge a lot of people money to buy right. to sell tickets. Yeah, and Percy Williams also said one of the other distinctions between a legitimate theater house and a vaudeville theater house is that that legitimate theater might be happy to have 5,000 patrons in a week whereas on a really good week with a really good bill a vaudeville house might pull in 35,000 people in that week. So that kind of gives you an idea of just how popular it was because it wasn't highbrow. It wasn't highfalutin. It was understandable. It was funny. It was moving. Um, and just about anybody could could tap into it and get it and be moved by it. So um, the, the, the thing is, though, is if they're charging 10 cents a piece, that's still only $3,500. So one of the ways these theaters made money is to have really good performers that they just squeezed because 300 bucks a week was not the average. And apparently there were plenty of performers who all they wanted to do was perform. And if you could give them just enough money to get to the next show and maybe eat along the way, they would just keep doing it year after year. And that's how they really made their money was with those acts. Yeah, and they, I mean, these people were performing um, 14 to 20 times a week. You know, definitely two shows a day. Sometimes on the weekend, they would do uh -huh. three or more. And they were, you know, I'm not sure how much, I guess the bigger star you get, any, you know, leverage has always worked the same way. You might have had a little more say, but unless you got to that tippy top point, like you were kind of doing what you were told and you were getting paid handsomely for it. But these people were working themselves to the bone on stage every day. Yeah, and I also have the impression that if you're a vaudeville performer, even the the top of the pile, uh, to to act like a a normal star, like a theater star, uh -huh. would be antithetical to the whole spirit of vaudeville. I think even like the biggest stars were still like, you know, work people. Like they right. they just got to work and they didn't they didn't put on airs. I guess you could say as they they would put it in Scotland. Right. <laughs> uh, there was a black vaudeville circuit that was. Uh, fully its own thing, uh, generally black-owned theaters. And there was a booking circuit, a vaudeville circuit, um, called the Theater Owners Booking Association, or TOBA, mm -hmm. T-O-B-A. And they were, again, they were, you know, grinding these people through the entertainment grinder, still paying them pretty well, though, uh, although it was less than uh, people on the white vaudeville circuit were getting paid. And right. I think the theaters probably were cheaper as well. Um, but 
the performers used to joke apparently that T-O-B-A uh, stood for tough on black asses. Yeah, because they really like put them through the grinder and like you need to be here and um, the gigs were guaranteed and there was, you know, good money, like you said, but it was, I get the impression too that it was more grueling. Uh, they were also a little bit looser, so you could get away with a little less family-friendly content, a little more sexual innuendo and body humor. Um, mm-hmm. There was one example Dave found called, uh, it was a, a husband-wife duo called Butterbeans and Susie. And <laughs> their big hit song was, uh, uh, that Susie sang was, I want a hot dog for my role. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, just <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. One of the other um, stars of the Black Vaudeville circuit was Moms Mabley. Is it Mabley or Mabley? I think Do you it's know? Mabley. Okay, that's what I thought too. So Moms Mabley was a, a star um, into the 60s on, I think maybe even the 70s on television with this one vaudeville character that she came up with way back in the 20s. Um, and I saw that she was a trailblazer in that she came out as a lesbian in 1921. Wow. Yeah. And they called her moms. Her real name was Jackie, but they called her moms because she was such like a maternal figure to all of the other performers on the vaudeville circuit, whoever she was on the bill with. You know, backstage, she just had kind of a maternal presence. So everybody nicknamed her moms. And that led to that character that just carried her for decades on. Yeah. I mean, she. if you look up a picture of her, like I for sure saw her on television in the 70s. Right. At yeah, she point. definitely looks familiar. So um, did you see that there is still a um, a theater, a black-owned theater from the black vaudeville circuit um, in Athens, still in operation today, the Morton Theater? Did you know that? Yeah, I've been to a play there. Yeah, so it started in 1910, and it's still going. It's awesome. There's another one in Macon, Georgia, called the Douglas Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's cool that these are still around. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and then in addition to the um, black vaudeville circuit, there was also a Yiddish vaudeville circuit, um, which Fanny Bryce, the inspiration for Funny Girl, came out of. Yeah. There was that Native American vaudeville circuit that you talked about. And I, I don't remember what episode we talked about it in. Maybe Geronimo. Yeah, or the Apache Wars episode. We talked about how Geronimo uh, joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Right. That would be an excellent example of Native Native American vaudeville, from what I understand. Yeah, and they would do, you know, they would uh, sort of play up their ethnic stereotype as well for yucks, but then also do stuff like, you know, show off some of their their skills, like whether it's roping or uh, dancing or, you know, shooting arrows and stuff like that. So, you know, it it had something for everyone, and I think their audiences um, were pretty much exclusively, although that's not true. They would uh, perform for... Uh, all kinds of audiences, right? Yeah, I think basically everybody. It wasn't a segregated performance from what I understand, unless, of course, the theater was strictly segregated. Okay, good point. So I should also, I think we should point out, Chuck, that when we're saying yucks in this episode, we're saying it without a C. Like, not yuck, but like yeah. a laugh. Sure. Right? Yeah. just want to make sure everybody Some knows that. Because we're always talking about <laughs> yucking somebody's yum, and they, they uh-huh. might be confused at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. A yuck, like a comedic yuck. Yeah. Yuck, Y-U-K. Yuck, yuck. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I guess we can go over here uh, toward the end, some of the bigger stars who came out of vaudeville. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of a uh, a hit list of some of the most famous people of early televised entertainment. Uh, mm-hmm. When that came along, everyone from Jack Benny to Fred Astaire and Will Rogers and Bob Hope, you know, they you think like, were they old enough? They were generally child performers in vaudeville. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, I also I saw George Burns was yeah. one of them, and he apparently had been in vaudeville since he was seven, and he finally met um, his wife Gracie Allen, and they became this amazing comic duo that went onto the radio and went onto the TV. Like they followed the trajectory yeah. that um, that most like the the absolute cream of the crop, most successful vaudeville performers followed. Um, and for our younger listeners, George Burns played God in the John Denver vehicle, Oh God. <laughs> and so John Denver <laughs> was a <laughs> folk singer uh, who you should listen to because he was the best. Would you call him a folk singer? Yeah, singer, songwriter, folk singer. What would you call him? Tech, Boy, early know. techno? I just, call him, I just call him John Denver. <laughs> I mean, he was I kind guess. of his own thing. It, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was definitely not like... Yacht rock or anything like that, because he was a mountain no. man. Sure, who liked flying his plane high on cocaine. <laughs> was he high on cocaine? Yes, but that's not why he crashed. I think he ran out of gas. But they, he did have cocaine in his system when they did the autopsy. Mm, that's sad. Uh, quickly, I do want to mention Jack Benny's story because it's kind of cool. Uh, he was born Benjamin Kubelski, and he was a violin prodigy. So his act at first as a vaudevillian as a child was a very serious sort of let me play my violin but <laughs> as the story goes he bombed uh, really bad one night and like cracked a really great one-liner which made everyone laugh really hard and mm -hmm. then started sort of working jokes into his act and before you knew it he was a comedian yeah uh, yeah i guess will rogers had the same thing happen to him he was mm -hmm. a rope trick roper a i roper. guess sure a roper, sure. And um, he failed at some trick and made a joke and everybody laughed. And he's like, maybe I should try adding jokes to my act. And that kind of went from there. He became America's most beloved humorist after a while. That's right. Uh, but you teased <laughs> earlier about movies, and I think I teased it too. And I think everybody sees where this is headed, mm -hmm. is movies came along. And movies, throwing a movie on a TV, on a, on a movie screen in a theater is a heck of a lot easier than booking eight or ten uh, human-animal acts every single day of the week. Yeah, and um, apparently movies kind of started out as a vaudeville act. Like, you might see a 10- or 20-minute short film as part of the show. Um, and Keith, uh, Benjamin Franklin Keith and his partner, Mr. Albie, I don't remember his first name, they or Abley, they were the first ones to actually start showing movies at vaudeville shows. And then it started to transition, Chuck, because they would need time to cool down the projector in between shows, and um, they would have vaudeville acts in between movies. So it went from a movie as just one part of a vaudeville bill to vaudeville just getting narrower and narrower and smushed down into these lesser roles. And then movies just kind of took off from there and vaudeville got left in the dust. Got left in the dust. Uh, but again, if you look at early TV uh, and even, again, into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that those were vaudeville shows. Hee Haw and the Mandrell Sisters and... Mm -hmm. uh, Solid gold, <laughs> maybe not solid gold. <laughs> kind of, oh, it was a little far. dance focused, <laughs> but yeah. What about Ed Sullivan? Yeah, probably. So supposedly, when he was canceled in 1971, he said vaudeville has died at second death. Wow. Yeah, he dropped his mic after that. I love it. This is good stuff. You got anything else about vaudeville? I got nothing else. Go out and support your local vaudeville theater. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then maybe see your roller derby after that. 
Uh, and since I said roller derby, everybody, of course, that means it's time for listener mail. All right. What we're going to do today instead of listener mail is uh, no. do a way overdue plug for a couple of things, uh, but certainly our Kiva team. Um, mm-hmm. Many years ago, what year was this? Does, I'm trying to see. 2008, it, I want to say. 2009, October 2009. So this is okay. close to the anniversary, actually, uh, of when we started this team in the very early days of Stuff You Should Know. Kiva is a micro-lending organization who uh, does great work. Micro-lending organizations aren't perfect, but Kiva is a good one, and they do a, mm-hmm. a pretty good job of getting very small amounts of money sourced from around the world into the hands of entrepreneurs and uh, sometimes in America, but usually in, de- in developing countries who really need it. Right. Yeah. It's it, like you said, it's a great organization. We've, our team has been going gangbusters for years. So let me just update everyone with a couple of stats. If you want to join Kiva, uh, it doesn't cost anything to join, but to make a donation, I think you can donate as little as like 25 bucks. Yeah. If you want to just get the ball rolling. And the idea is that these people pay this stuff back almost mm-hmm. all the time. And then mm-hmm. you can relend that money. And I've been relending the same, you know, from the same kitty of money I started with years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have now raised as a collective Stuff You Should Know team over $12 million. Awesome. Which is staggering. Uh, 455,000 loans uh, nice. plus, you know, and change. And then uh, for an average of almost 40 loans per member uh, and a how, little how over 11,506 wow. team members. That's fantastic. It's really Congratulations great. to everybody on the Kiva team. Keep it up. And what else and, do we um, got going? Well, hold on. One other thing about the Kiva team. Oh, okay. I always wanted to make sure to say like it's extremely inclusive and they're always happy to let any new member join. So don't feel shy about it at all. And then the other thing we just found out about recently, we didn't know, is we have not one, but two Red Cross blood donation teams, Stuff You Should Know teams. Did I didn't, you know that? I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know there were blood donation teams at all. <laughs> now you do. So if you donate blood to the Red Cross, you can um, do it as the part of the Stuff You Should Know team if you want. We'll be happy to support you yeah. any way we can with T-shirts, maybe um, small grants, um, or just, you know, our thanks in advance for being a good person. Yeah, so go get a, go donate some blood. Uh, donate blood. Get your Nutter Butters. In our name. Get your sweet cookies. Mm-hmm. God, I love Nutter Butters. Yeah, they're great, but they're particularly great when you're down a pint of blood and your head's swimming a little bit. That's the only time I have them. I can't buy Nutter Butters and keep them at the house. You know, it's one of the weird things of America is that there's two types of Nutter Butters and they're totally different. Have you noticed? There's like no. the wafer, like there's a wafery kind. Really? Yes. Is it shaped like and a peanut? No, it's square. Oh. It's very basic. Hashtag basic. Okay. But then there's the <laughs> peanut shaped one that's yeah, a cookie. That's the it's one. It's got, you know, it's a cookie sandwich. This is like a, a filled wafer. Um <sighs> Yeah, and they're Didn't both Nutter Butters, same logo, same packaging, just two different types of peanut butter cookies. Man, you know how disappointed I would be if I bought the wrong package? <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll bet this happened to more than one person for sure. All right, so pay attention at the cookie aisle, everyone. So if you want to join our Kiva team, go ahead. Uh, it's at kiva.org slash team slash stuff you should know, if I'm not mistaken. Or just go to kiva.org and search stuff you should know. Uh, I'm quite sure you can do the same thing on the Red Cross blood, <laughs> blood donation site. 
And uh, you can also get in touch with us at StuffPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.